you. Turn with me, please, to 1 Samuel chapter 15. In the Church Bible, that's page 285, and in the large print, it's page 438. 1 Samuel 15. The last time we looked at 1 Samuel, which was a couple of Sundays ago, we saw what could have been a great Israelite victory turned into just a good victory. Israel, you may remember, had the Philistines on the run. But because of a foolish decision by Saul, not allowing his soldiers to stop and eat that day, because of that foolish decision, the Philistines escaped to fight Israel another day. And chapter 14 ended with a few summary verses about Saul's reign. Now that's a bit ominous because Saul is still reigning at this point. It's almost as if the book has been closed on his reign, even while he's still on the throne. And this morning we're going to see why Saul's time as God's king came to an end, even though he continued to sit on Israel's throne for many more years. I'm going to read all of 1 Samuel chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Teliam, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, go away, leave the Amalekites, so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor, and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, the Lord bless you. 
I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleating of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission, saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the man, and so I gave in to them. Now, I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe, and it tore. Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back with Saul, and Saul worshipped the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. Agag came to him in chains, and he thought, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. This is God's word. But what is this passage about? It seems to be about a lot of things. 
There's a lot going on. Lots of issues are raised in this chapter. There's the horror of God's judgment. That strikes us, doesn't it? There's the issue of God's regret. That comes up several times. What does it mean for God to regret something? But the central issue of this chapter is not God's judgment or God's regret. We will think about those issues. But the big question here is this. How important really is obedience to God? We know that it's important, but how important? Can anything take the place of obedience to God? Can we substitute other things in place of obedience? That's the big question. And the answer we're given in this passage is that obedience is better than sacrifice. That's what God says. But we're going to have to look closely at this to figure out exactly what God means. Well, the opening verses here set the scene for us. Verses 1 to 3 give us God's clear command. The writer emphasizes the fact that we are dealing here with God's command. At the end of verse 1, Samuel says to Saul, Listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. So yes, the words are coming here from Samuel's lips. But Samuel is God's mouthpiece. And then look closely again at the command God delivers through Samuel. Verse 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Saul is commissioned here to be God's instrument of judgment. And it's important for us to see there is a long history leading up to this judgment. God mentions something that happened nearly 300 years before this, the exodus from Egypt. God's people had been slaves in Egypt, and God had brought them out under the leadership of Moses. He brought them across the Red Sea and out of Pharaoh's reach. And as these newly escaped slaves were catching their breath in the desert, the Amalekites pounced on them. The Amalekites tried to wipe Israel out. And this is how God describes it in the book of Deuteronomy. He says to Israel, when you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and cut off all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. The point God is making is an attack on God's people is an attack on God himself. And at that time, God said, the day will come when I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. That was about 300 years before this command is given to Saul. And our passage will go on to tell us the Amalekites have not changed in those 300 years. 
For 300 years they have continued in their wickedness. They have not turned to God. They have continued to attack Israel. They have continued to be deeply and consistently set against God and God's people. And for 300 years, God has been patient. But now his patience has come to an end. It's time for judgment. And this is the pattern of God's judgment. Sometimes people get the idea that the God of the Old Testament is different somehow from the God of the New Testament. They think the God of the Old Testament is a harsh God of justice and judgment. And the God of the New Testament is a loving God of grace and mercy. But when someone says that, I always wonder, have you actually read the Old Testament or the New Testament? Because if you have a problem with the God of the Old Testament, I don't know what you're going to do with the God of the New Testament. Because the judgment we see in the Old Testament is nothing, nothing compared to what we find in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we see small-scale, localized judgment. A few of God's enemies feel his wrath. But the New Testament promises total, worldwide judgment on God's enemies. And the promise of that judgment comes initially from the lips of Jesus Christ. And then it's repeated throughout the New Testament. And in both the Old and New Testament, the pattern of God's judgment is the same. A period of patience, an opportunity for God's enemies to repent, and then finally God brings justice. His judgment falls on his enemies. God insists that evil and rebellion matter. They are worthy of punishment and they will be punished. That's the pattern. Now, yes, there are instances where judgment falls suddenly on individuals in the Bible. But when it comes to nations and peoples, the pattern is patience and then finally judgment. The New Testament tells us we are living today in a time of God's patience. Second Peter says, God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Then the very next verse tells us the day of God's judgment will come. It will come like a thief. And everything unholy will burn in God's fire. God is marvelously patient. And there is also a limit to his patience. Evil matters. It will be punished. And as we look at 1 Samuel 15, it's important for us to see you and I will never be given a command like the one Saul is given here. At this point, Saul is God's anointed king. And as God's king, he is to carry out God's judgment. That's one of the responsibilities of God's king. 
And that means neither you nor I will ever be given that responsibility. We live under the reign of God's perfect king, King Jesus. And when this time of God's patience ends, it's King Jesus who will bring God's judgment, not us. So let's never get our role confused. Our role is to call men and women to repentance. Jesus will take care of the judgment. So this command to Saul is not for us to apply to ourselves. In a moment we'll see what the application is for us. But first we really need to get this. If we have a problem with the God of the Old Testament, then we also have a problem with the God of the New Testament. The Bible speaks with one voice. It presents us with one God. His character does not change. He is eternally the same. He's the God of love, mercy, and grace who, in the end, brings judgment on those who persist in rejecting his love, mercy, and grace. The God who exists is infinitely good, but he is never safe. And we are fools if we treat him lightly. We're doomed if we continue in rebellion against him. The New Testament book of Hebrews says, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If you're not a Christian today, please understand who you're defying. His love is great and his judgment is terrible. He's provided a way for you to escape judgment. Take it before it's too late. Own up to your sin. Turn from your sin. Put your trust in the one who took God's judgment in your place. That's what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And today God calls you to run to Christ and be saved. We've seen that God's command to bring judgment had a unique application to Saul as God's king. But the point that is going to have application for you and me is the simple fact that God's command here is clear. Saul knows what God is commanding him to do. The Amalekites are to be totally destroyed. And the clarity of God's command is key to everything that happens in the rest of the chapter. We're told in verse 4 that Saul gathers a massive army. He sends a message to another group called the Kenites. He tells them to move away from the Amalekites. And so apparently the Kenites are living among the Amalekites. But God has no quarrel with the Kenites. They are friends of Israel. And so they are to take their chance and escape. And what that means is, any Amalekites that wanted to renounce their opposition to God and his people, they had the chance to escape too. 
They could have slipped away with the Kenites. Just renounce their identity as enemies of God's people and they would have been saved. But there's no indication any of the Amalekites took that chance. And when the Kenites leave, Saul attacks the Amalekites. The attack is a huge success. Saul wins a great victory. But then look what we read in verse 8. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. And all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely. But everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. This is all the appearance of a great success. The enemy is defeated, their king is captured, and Israel has got richer in the process. Sheep and cattle are very valuable items. But we're supposed to notice a problem here. We could call it a fly in the ointment. Saul has disobeyed God. He has not done what God commanded him to do. He obeyed, you notice, when it came to the despised and weak things. But he disobeyed when it came to the good, valuable stuff. But the whole point of ordering that everything be destroyed, the point of that was to say that this was about God's judgment. It wasn't about Israel making a profit. And when we look at Saul's success from that perspective we have to add a significant question mark. Because this is certainly not success in God's eyes. And God delivers his verdict to Samuel. Verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all that night. What does the Bible mean when it says God regrets something? Well, I think the best insight into this comes from a commentator called Dale Ralph Davis. He says this, and when I put this up, remember that Yahweh is God's personal name. It's translated as Lord in our Bibles. This is what he says. It is a tragedy when Saul refuses to be Yahweh's disciple. It grieves Yahweh. He is not a you win some, you lose some God. Nonchalance is never listed as an attribute of the true God. Verse 11 does not intend to suggest Yahweh's fickleness of purpose, but his sorrow over sin. It does not depict Yahweh flustered over lack of foresight, but Yahweh grieved over lack of obedience. God's emotions are not like ours. But he is not an emotionless God. The king he anointed and commissioned has turned away from him. And while God is not surprised by Saul's sin, he is grieved by it. 
And so is Samuel. Verse 11 says he cries out to the Lord all night. Then he goes to find Saul and he's told that Saul has set up a monument in his own honor. And when Samuel finally tracks Saul down, the king of Israel is upbeat. He's giddy with his success. His hat's at a jaunty angle. Verse 13. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Saul has been caught out here. The evidence of his disobedience is standing all around him, bleating and lowing. Denying his obedience hasn't worked, so next he tries to pass the blame. See how he puts it in verse 15. It was the soldiers who spared the stuff, but what was destroyed, well, Saul says, we did that. And then Saul tries to put a religious spin on this disobedience. He says the animals they spared are for sacrifices to the Lord. Our disobedience was for God's honor, Samuel. But God hadn't commanded Saul to bring him sacrifices. He commanded Saul to deliver judgment. Saul has done what you and I are often tempted to do. God has asked for one thing from Saul, but instead of obeying, Saul says, I hear you, but I know, I'll give you this instead, God. I'm probably the worst cook any of us in here have ever met. But thankfully, Megan cooks very well. The only trouble is most of her cookbooks are from America. And there are just some ingredients that you can't get over here. There are more and more places that do stock American items. But last week, Megan had a recipe that required molasses. And she was wondering, what could I substitute for that? Maybe treacle? That might work. And often that does work with recipes. You can substitute one ingredient for another. And it still works out pretty much the same. But when it comes to obedience to God's clear commands, we can't just substitute something else. Something that's more convenient, less difficult. God's verdict is that there are no substitutes for obedience. Before we came here, I think I've mentioned a few times before that I served as interim pastor at a church in Chicago for a while. And we arrived at that church not knowing anybody. And there was a man who used to put $20 in my hand on his way out of the service every week. And after he'd done that a couple of times... I decided to ask one of the deacons about him. And I discovered that the man who was giving me the money was living his life in a mess of disobedience. He was terrible to his wife, 
and he had a significant alcohol problem. But he was unwilling to address those problems. And when I told the deacon what the man had been doing, giving me money, the deacon's response was, well, he probably thinks he's making up for all of that by giving the preacher money every week. Do you ever fall into that? Is there some area in your life where you're refusing to give God obedience? But you're hoping to buy him off with something else you're doing. Maybe you are similar to that man in Chicago. Are you putting extra into the offering to try and pay for some disobedience? Or maybe in your case it's not giving money. Maybe it's having a theological discussion with the preacher. Displaying your knowledge of the Bible. Even while you're refusing to obey the God of the Bible. By all means, come and talk to me about the Bible. But if you're holding out against God, if some area of your life is off limits to God... Don't think that impressing me makes up for that. Maybe the temptation takes other forms for you. Maybe it's just, I'll show up at church. Or maybe I'll give up my evenings to help at church activities. Maybe that will compensate for this disobedience that I'm just not willing to give up. Or this obedience that I'm not willing to give. But you can't do that. If God is convicting you about something, maybe for you it's to man up and lead your family spiritually. Or maybe he's convicting you about greed. Or a love for gossip. Or a need to be reconciled to someone. Maybe he's challenging you to own up to your faith at work. If God is convicting you, don't ignore it. Don't decide you're going to throw God a bone by doing something else for him. Look what God says to Saul through Samuel. After Samuel has repeated God's command to destroy those wicked people, And after Saul has repeated his excuses for why he didn't obey, Samuel says, down in verse 22, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. God is not saying there's something wrong with the sacrificial system in Israel. Now certainly that system was only preparatory. It ended when Jesus came. He's the true sacrifice. But there's nothing wrong with the system until Jesus came. God had set the system up, and at this point, it's still in operation. 
And in this context, God is not saying that sacrifices are bad. It's that in this situation, God has not called for a ceremonial sacrifice from Saul. He's called Saul to be an instrument of judgment. And no amount of religious ceremony is going to make up for Saul's disobedience. So in this situation, Saul could offer the best animals until he was too tired to lift them onto the altar. And it wouldn't mean a thing. Saul has decided what he's willing and not willing to give to God. And because of that, Saul's religious ceremonies are actually rebellion against God. Have you ever realized it's very possible to come and sit here and listen and sing your lungs out and celebrate the Lord's Supper and yet for God to view the whole thing as nothing but rebellion? If you're giving God acts of worship as a substitute for obedience, then your worship is rebellion. Over the last few weeks as we've looked at this, we've seen a pattern of disobedience from Saul. And now Samuel says, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. And the final verses of this chapter show us the tragedy of the king Israel wanted. The greatest tragedy here is that Saul never gets it. He never grasps the significance of what's happening. He listens to Samuel's words, God has rejected you as king, and then Saul says in verse 24, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin, and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. This is utterly superficial from Saul. He says, I've sinned, forgive my sin, and I'll get on with being king. And you can sense Samuel's exasperation in verse 26. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. In other words, don't you get it, Saul? It's over. Your kingship has been rejected by God. You can't just carry on. And it's important to realize this does not mean there's no hope for Saul as a man. His kingship is over. But Saul himself could turn and he could be reconciled to God. And yet it seems that he never does. Instead, notice he turns his attention to saving face in front of the nation. There's a sad moment when Saul grabs hold of Samuel's robe. The robe tears and Samuel says, this is a picture of your kingship, Saul. The Lord has torn it away from you. You are the king Israel wanted. And now God is going to give Israel the king she needs. 
God's mind is made up, Samuel says, and he does not change his mind. He will not reverse the decision he's made. It's a desperately sad moment. But look what Saul says in response to it in verse 30. I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back with Saul, and Saul worshipped the Lord. Instead of being torn up about his broken relationship with God, Saul says to Samuel, just don't let me lose face before the elders and the people. Help me keep up my reputation. Someone has said that for Saul, the esteem of man is more important than reconciliation with God. And it's all so different from the king who is going to follow Saul. Later on, when King David falls into sin, he prays to God and he says, against you, you only have I sinned. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. David was no less of a sinner than Saul. But when he sinned, David didn't care about maintaining his position or his reputation with the nation. David wanted to be reconciled to God. Here in verse 31, we're told that Saul takes part in a public worship service. But the rest of Saul's life proves that this is just a show. He wants the nation to keep thinking he's God's man. Saul cares more about appearance than reality. If you've been listening to this and if God has been prodding you in some way, if you realize that you have been trying to pay God off for some area of disobedience, don't miss this opportunity to put things right. Bring the issue into the open. Talk about it with a brother or sister that you trust. Don't be held back by pride over your reputation. All of us are beggars before God. All of us. And who cares if someone does think less of you? Be reconciled to God. So what if doing that ends up ruining your human reputation? This passage ends with pain. First, Samuel ends up finishing the job that Saul was supposed to do. Because of Saul's disobedience, Agag is complacent. He thinks that God's judgment has turned out to be no big deal for him. He thinks it's safe to be an enemy of God. But Samuel puts Agag to death. Because in the end, God's enemies cannot escape his judgment. And verse 35 says, Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. 
And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. God's prophet mourns for Saul. And God himself is grieved over this whole tragic situation. It's the same phrase that was used earlier. It doesn't mean God is agitated that he didn't see this coming. It means God sorrows over Saul's sin and disobedience. This is a heavy passage of scripture. And the most sobering thing about this is that it's only a pale foreshadowing of the future. One day a far more terrible judgment is going to fall on God's enemies. And included in that judgment, there will be some who had great reputations among God's people. Men and women who made impressive offerings to God and who did impressive religious things but who lived in stubborn rebellion against God and who in their hearts refused to be reconciled to him. As we feel the weight of this passage, we can be thankful for God's perfect timing. Because this morning we have here in front of us a sign of God's grace to us. This table reminds us that we who deserve judgment can find mercy. Because on the cross, God's Son received the full weight of God's judgment. If the people of Amalek had turned to God, if Saul had turned to God, they would have been forgiven. Not because God would ignore their sin, but because one day Jesus would pay for their sin. And today, you and I, we're people who are no better than the Amalekites. We're no better than Saul. But because of Jesus, we can stand here accepted and brought near to God. If you've never given your life to him, do it this morning. If you're a Christian who's been trying to buy God off by, buying him, by giving him something instead of your obedience, then come back to him. Be reconciled to him. Before we gather around this table, we're going to respond to God's word. We're going to do it as we sing, you are beautiful beyond description. And then here is love, vast as the ocean. <laughs>